Hello! The winner is... Well, sorry I didn't win it, Mr. Lemley. I know no one else I'd rather have beat me than you. I am the most frantically sought person in Cinemaland. I, Oscar the Academy Award. Hello! And welcome back to The Snub Club, a podcast where we talk about the movie that has the most Oscar noms and no wins at all. I'm your host, Danny Vincent. With me, as always, are two other hosts who will now say their names. What's up, dude? I'm doing a surfer accent, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's me, Sarah. Wow. <laughs> um, okay, let me get to... Man, it's you, boy, Caleb Bunn. I was just... Uh, because we were talking right before we recorded about the Batman. I was just impersonating our latest announced Batman, Keanu Reeves. So. <laughs> Keanu Reeves as Man Bat. This is all I want. Well, hopefully that happens in League of Super Pets too. <laughs> notable, notable Californian. <laughs> Whoa. Anyway, this week we're going back to the 19th Academy Awards to talk about the 19th Academy Awards. That's right. We're talking about a certain movie that I have to do my countdown for, but I lost the countdown. I'm so sorry, guys. Cancelled. Just kidding. I'm out of here. All right. Is this our last episode? Yeah. Whenever Why can't we have when, ended it one get, episode before? We're never going to get to the Godfather 3. Anyway. <laughs> um. All right. So at the 19th Academy Awards, we've... There oh, I had a, a question. Um, I had a que- I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt. I had a question. Did we want to talk about... Um, I know we talked about our predictions for the awards, but did we oh. want to talk about goings on, going on, goings on? Oh with yeah, the current Academy Awards. Well, first the ninety fourth. I want to rescind my uh, my statement that John Hamm is a cool guy. I'm gonna have it taken off the record. <laughs> 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 news broke a few days afterwards that I was unaware of. Uh. But yeah, um, yeah. The, I think it's. I think it's safe is, to say that we will not be live tweeting because we will not be watching. Yes. Uh. Yeah. We might be. And by we, I mean I might still be on Twitter at the time, uh, and just like quote tweeting the academy and xing out it. But I won't be watching the show, and neither will the other two people here because, uh, <laughs> the Oscars. Every Oscar is equal. And, uh, but of course, some Oscars are more equal than others. It's <laughs> a quote Animal Farm uh, and the Academy this year. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, for context, <laughs> for context, <laughs> I refuse um, to give any context. The, the 90, it's the 94th Academy Awards. Let me pull up my little list here. I'm not going to read every film, I'm just going to read what the categories are. Um, so it is this year, um, because of because of not a number of reasons, according to the Academy president, including um, guidance from their network partner, Disney. Um, <laughs> Disney's in the news a lot today. <laughs> they are they are not going to be they are not going to be televising 
Um, best documentary short subject, best film editing, best makeup and hairstyling, best music original score, uh, best production design, uh, best short film animated, best short film live action, and best sound. Very suspicious that these are all the categories that, outside of, of course, the short categories, that Dune is the favorite to win in at a ceremony that's being run by Disney. Well, every ceremony is run by Disney. It's always on ABC. <laughs> um, so for that reason, it's not just, I mean, it's not just Dune. No Time to Die is also pretty shut out here. Um, and obviously, you know, all of the, this is not, you know, not to get on like a soapbox or anything because we have to talk about, you know, this movie from <laughs> years ago. <laughs> so but <laughs> it's not just categories, you know, specifically not that editing and you know score are not important because of course they are but these are entire films that will not be presented to the public um and that's just abhorrent to me um and you know the academy is notorious for responding to pushback <laughs> and kind of changing their mind about certain things today uh you know just today steven spielberg made a statement about it um as well as denny villeneuve and guillermo del toro so We'll see what happens. I honestly had no interest in watching the ceremony anyways. Um, but just as a general statement, in this kind of you know time capsule of where we're at in the year 2022, I think it's important to just kind of state that we don't like this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, well said. There's a lot of things. Oh, sorry. You talk, Caleb. Go ahead. Well, I just... I, I was actually kind of looking forward to watching the awards again this year because i didn't last year because i had the opportunity to hang out with some people who i hadn't seen uh since covid um but i always enjoy the academy awards even though they are not they are very out of touch and not entertaining it's still like a fun night to just sit back and uh you know have some friends over and watch them but if they're gonna be this disrespectful to like like you said, all all the awards should be equal. If they're going to be this disrespectful, then there's absolutely no reason that anyone should respect them by watching it. Um, and it's especially a shame with the documentary shorts that they're not showing because half of those you can watch on Netflix. So it's not even like those are inaccessible. Well, but who, again, it kind of goes back to this thing where I don't, I don't mean to be very pushing the conspiracy theory against Disney. But, oh, it's no, it's Disney. Yeah, because well, sure. like, like, because I also think of like, uh, the Jimmy Kimmel thing, where right after the noms were announced, Jimmy Kimmel was like, "Why wasn't Spider Man No Way Home nominated when Don't Look Up was nominated?" And here's the thing, I don't like Don't Look Up. I thought it was a terrible movie, but it was a very popular movie. So to say no one watched Don't Look Up is just a categorical lie. Like people saw it, there was discourse over it. Among like people at my workplace, like it was a watched film. Uh, so to me, it's just like, yeah, it feels very like Disney doing their thing. But I also want to clarify one thing to our listeners that I think is important uh, is that we did say that uh, they won't be shown at all. They will be recorded and edited into the broadcast later. Because editing <laughs> is important. For television. <laughs> Not for movies, but for televised award ceremonies, definitely. We need that. But they'll also make sure that they talk about, you know, fan favorite movie and, you know, cheer moment. Oh, we have to fit in room for a joke where Amy Schumer goes like, 
Worst person in the world? Isn't that about my ex? No, she would say about about me. She would oh. say, isn't that me? <laughs> That's um, true. <laughs> I just want to make a point. Again, I'm going to get on my soapbox here. Oscars fan favorite. Vote for Malignant. You know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm going to be honest. I hope Minnie Mata wins. Because Minnie Mata winning would be the most funny possible end- ending to that experiment. <laughs> Minnie Mata is the Johnny Depp Stan movie that has not got a U.S. release, but inexplicably has qualified for this award. People love Johnny Depp. In the year of our Lord, 2022. Does any of the fan favorite moment being this Johnny Depp movie that does not have a release in the U.S.? Love it. Love it. But all of this to say, uh, Caleb, were you going to say something? No, I'm just, I'm so very annoyed right now like i i'd kind of i'd kind of like i guess compartmentalized all this since the news came out this is just like man you guys have been talking like threatening to do this for so long and every time you've mentioned it people have gone off about how it's such a dumb thing to do and you just didn't listen to anybody well to be fair to the academy and to bring it back to pointing it at uh the parent company of disney there was an article that did state, I believe in the Hollywood Reporter, that initially they were told to have, they had to cut 12 or they wouldn't be televised. 12 categories from the broadcast. Then go to a different company. I mean, like, the real answer is just put them on streaming. <laughs> like, you well, know? I mean, I think that's the I think that's kind of the takeaway here is at the end of the day, you know, I mean, David Rudin, he's said like, you know, this is for to make a more a more engaging telecast. And it's like. But I don't care about the telecast. Like, I want to know who wins the awards. That's all I want to know. Mm-hmm. Like, the fact that he could even say, you know, we 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 cut these so that we could have more skits. Like, that and sounds like, like the worst possible decision me, you could have made. Like, if you want, like, I, I keep going back to this. It's like, okay, if we wanted to go back to having a host, that's fine. But I legitimately think Amy Schumer turns people off from like a very like she's a very divisive comedian. She turns people off from watching stuff like this. Also, <laughs> this is why this is why we should break up multi conglomerates because Disney should not be able to control both film distribution and television distribution. Not to get on my little soapbox. Disney shouldn't be allowed to do a lot of things. Well, I'm very confused know. Why, why they were allowed to cut score. Because Disney, you're nominated in that category. <laughs> well, you know, we can't have people be aware that we have a first ever uh, woman of, I believe she's the first ever woman of color to be nominated, uh, Jermaine Franco for Encanto. Uh, if I'm wrong about this, I will look it up afterwards and edit in a retraction. Honestly, show. like, I am <laughs> I'm surprised that they didn't cut song. Well, I'm no, because Billie Eilish is famous. Sure, so, sure. Yeah, yeah but they she's get not, those people to Disney perform. Movie. Yeah. Well, I think about last year where they moved the song performances to before the ceremony, which is oh, ridiculous because they had like well, her you nominated. Know what? To be fair, <laughs> yes, last year, like 24 year old, you know, black woman, her, she won. We love. Um, to be fair, the, the ceremony last year was a little bit weird because of, you know, pandemic conditions, whatever. Um, this Some year, of her I mean, choices made too. <laughs> oh, also, uh, this is like such a, we're not talking about this movie at all. Who's, who's not vaccinated? That's what I want to know. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. I've been doing some uh, 
investigating on this. So if you're if you're not aware, I don't think Caleb might not be, and the listeners might not be. A Hollywood Reporter ran a blind item saying that the SAG Award required vaccines, uh, and I believe Critics' Choice as well. However, the Academy just requires a negative PCR test because one of the acting winners from last year apparently has not been vaccinated. Uh, and this narrows it down to two people because uh, Minari woman, who I'm not going to try to pronounce her name to get it wrong and get really embarrassed, but the grandma from Minari was vaccinated on camera and Anthony Hopkins was vaccinated on camera, which means either Daniel Kalula or Francis McDormand is unvaccinated. And there's a lot of our evidence for and against the two of them. I, I have my automatic guess, but I don't want to get into this game because I feel like well, yeah, I, I, this I, is I a lot of controversial. But we also don't want to be sued by either of them. Please listen to our uh, Aerosmith episode to learn about our vaccination special. True. Um, yeah. So anyway, we watched Henry V. <laughs> Wait, we have to do my countdown. <laughs> The 19th Academy Awards, there was a film that had eight nominations. It's called The Best Years of Our Life. It won seven of those. It won Best Picture. It won Best Director for our boy William Wyler. It won Best Actor for our boy Frederick March. Best Supporting Actor for Harold Russell, who has a fun fact about his life that I'll tell you next week. Best Screenplay, which is the adapted award at the time. Best Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture. And Best Film Editing. And I have listed because it won... Seven out of eight, it lost sound recording. If you're curious what the one thing that kept it from getting a clean sleep was. Then, with seven nominations, was The Yearling. It won two. Best Art Direction and Best Color. Or best Art Direction and Best Cinematography and Color for both. Sorry. Um, and then with six nominations was The Jolson Story, which won Best Scoring of a Musical and Best Sound Recording. And then with five nominations... But two wins was Anna and the King of Siam, which is kind of the flip side of the yearling because it won both art direction and cinematography, but for black and white. And then with five nominations, but no competitive wins was It's a Wonderful Life. But as we've covered, it won a special technical achievement a couple years later or the year after. I don't have it open right now uh, for the snow that was created for the snow making machine that was made for it. And then that takes us down to four nominations which The Razor's Edge had, it won Supporting Actress Fran Baxter, which leads us to this week's, which won four, had four nominations and won none of these competitively. However, Henry V by Laurence Olivier did win a Special Achievement Award for Laurence Olivier um, for directing, acting, and I believe producing the film. So that is what we're discussing this week. Laurence Olivier's Henry V. Not to be confused with Kenneth Branagh's Henry V. Yeah. Noted Kenneth Branagh, who is nominated for a ton of Oscars this year, but has not spoken about the... Not in categories. <laughs> He's too busy defending Funny Mustache Man and his boat of canceled individuals. He's not defending. Um, he just couldn't... He wasn't given the funds to reshoot. I'm not going to slander Branagh that bad. Listen... I love Kenneth Branagh. We're not going to get into this. <laughs> We're going to talk about Branagh this week, but we aren't going to beat that negative on him. All right. So I'm just going to drop in the one tiny bit of historical context I have, and I'm, I'm, I have a feeling we'll flesh out as we discuss the movie. I tried finding something interesting to talk about, like 
Lawrence Olivier at his point in this in his career, or William Shakespeare when he wrote this, or the actual historical figure. None of them are interesting. Shakespeare in the 1940s, like, what was he doing in 1940? What was real Shakespeare doing? (laughs) (laughs) But um, this was the only interesting thing I found. Uh, was that this was made under the Ministry of Information, which was Britain's um, propaganda wing. Um, And it was made near the end of the war as a morale booster um, and to kind of get people, you know, with the idea of, oh, we have this great heritage of war, I guess. It's kind of a bizarre thing because the whole war that they're fighting in this movie is against France, which was their allies, but um because of that they can they like cut out a lot of uh the more we traumatic elements the of the movie. We're yeah. gonna talk about the cuts. Well, I just wanna say my thing is I sent that little tidbit to my boyfriend who is Scottish, um, and he said LMAO with multiple <laughs> O's. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> there's a little bit more I have a bunch of like little facts that we can go through as we talk about the movie but first um, we skipped my segment yeah, well, so I, I need to do that was, yeah, I was like I want to know what's dominated for okay, let's so, jump I'm sorry <laughs> I, we've been talking for so long I've completely lost track <laughs> so um, Henry V was nominated for four Academy Awards it did win one you know an honorary award um, but it was nominated for best picture uh, best Actor for Laurence Olivier, who lost to Frederick March, who are the best years of our lives. Um, Olivier was nominated nine more times for acting, and he won for Hamlet a couple of years later. Um, he was nominated for directing for Hamlet, and he won two honorary awards in his lifetime, including Henry V. Um, it was nominated for Best Art Direction, um, Color, for Paul Sheriff and Carmen Dillon, and they lost to Cedric Gibbons, Paul Gross, and Edwin B. Willis for The Yearling. And Sheriff won for Moulin Rouge in 1952. Uh, and Dillon won for Hamlet. Um, and she is notable for being one of the first and only women uh, in the art direction industry for years. Um, and then the final award was Best Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture um, for William Walton, and he lost to uh, Hugo Friedhofer for The Best Years of Our Lives. And William Walton was also nominated for Hamlet. So a lot of, you know, cross-collaboration between Laurence Olivier uh, and, you know, his various uh, different, these various different people who were nominated for this movie. So I'm glad that they won stuff for Hamlet because that's a much better movie than this. I have not seen Hamlet, the Olivier Hamlet. I've only seen the Kenneth Branagh version. So. And I actually, I love Hamlet the play. I love, I, I think it's a really good play. So, It's not as, and I think the Branagh one stands out. Why are we talking about Hamlet? The Branagh one stands out because it's more interesting just in terms of the creative decisions he makes. The Laurence Olivier version, though, if you're going to do a straight take on Hamlet, is pretty, it's pretty spectacular. Uh, so I think to talk about this movie, we're not going to do a scene by scene description of it. That would both be impossible for us, but also because this is a Shakespeare classic air quotes. And that's towards the play, not towards the movie. So 
I consider Shakespeare fun story actually. A friend of mine <laughs> when the Macbeth trailer came out, the the new tragedy Macbeth movie, uh, we started you know in my group chat we started talking about it, and then he just said. What? Wait, why are we talking about scenes to make specific scenes to Macbeth? No one spoil it for me. I don't want to know how it ends. <laughs> then we were like, how did you not read Macbeth in school? <laughs> okay, I, I haven't ever read Macbeth. I've I've seen it a couple times, but I, I always, just luck of the draw, I always read Hamlet. See, which works out for me. I love Hamlet. I read I, in I school. I like Macbeth more. Personally. I was in, you know, I was in the AP track or whatever. I read Romeo and Juliet, The Taming of the Shrew, Macbeth and Hamlet. And I think that's all that I read of Shakespeare. All right. Well, let's just do this. Let's talk about our, uh, our own uh, experiences with Billy Shakes. Uh, I have read in high school, in high school, I read Macbeth, uh, Romeo and Juliet and Hamlet. Then I saw a production of Midsummer Night's Dream and I acted in a production of Much Ado About Nothing. It's my only Shakespeare role I've ever done. I played Don Pedro, which is the role Denzel plays in the Kenneth Branagh version, which is really cool that I played a role that Denzel played. But also, really bum a bummer when I watched the Branagh version finally, and I realized he cut all the best monologues from Denzel. <laughs> I was like, no, I wanted to hear this monologue. And then I'd have to like open this up. I've played a few, like done a few monologues, you know, when I was in school because you have to do monologues. But I've seen Julius Caesar. Yeah, we all I've- did. Yeah, I yep. saw I saw um the Branagh version of Henry V. Uh I believe that is actually it for my experience with Shakespeare. I've missed a lot of classics. And of course I've seen multiple adaptations of Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet, but I have not seen the Lawrence Olivier one of Hamlet. I've seen the one with Mel Gibson, who I can't I don't know the director of. Uh and I've seen, of course, the Badlers, the Baz Lerman Romeo and Juliet. And I've have seen both Much Ado's. Uh, I've seen both Much Ado movies. Have you seen Ten Things I Hate About You? No, but if we were to open it up to those adaptations, uh, isn't She's All That an adaptation of Shakespeare? Or am I confusing? It's it was Twelfth Night. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen She's All That. I guess that counts. Uh, I just want to point out, just in case people don't know, I know this is kind of a dumb thing to bring up, but we keep mentioning Brana because he's considered kind of the modern day quote unquote um, Lawrence Olivier. Because um, Brana has been nominated for multiple Oscars for, and you know, if, his first one was Henry V, like this is. Yeah, um, uh, and he he's readapted he's readapted all these Shakespeare movies, and uh, he also um, played Laurence Olivier in My Week with Marilyn when he and he was nominated for an Oscar for it. So, you know, they're very they're kind of cut from the same cloth. Um, however. I will say that Laurence Olivier played Othello and Kenneth Branagh played Iago because it was like 30 years later. And I, would, I actually do want to check out. I do want to check out the Branagh one because I think uh, Branagh as Iago and Fishburne as Othello sounds like a good cast. I have no idea how the movie is, though, but that sounds like a good cast. And one last thing that I will mention is that um, in multiple movies, not just. Yeah, not just Henry V, but I think also um, Much Ado About Nothing. Um, Kenneth Branagh cast his then wife, uh, Emma Thompson. And there's a bit of trivia about this movie regarding Laurence Olivier and Vivian Lee. So. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, I just realized uh, 
<laughs> we haven't seen enough of Shakespeare adaptation. Uh, at least I have, which is that the boys from Syracuse is adapted <laughs> from a Shakespeare oh. play. <laughs> uh. Uh, that's not a very good musical. I had to see the movie. It's not a very good movie. Well, if you want a Shakespeare recommendation for me movie-wise, Much Ado, the Branagh version. It's excellent. Very fun. And movie. I would say, I would say, Ten Things I Hate About You. Oh, I was, I was uh, keeping it to the like the, the straight old... adaptation. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I want to watch Caleb, Throne of Blood. That's the one I'm Caleb, most wanting to watch. Is Throne of Blood. Caleb, what is your, what is your experience with Shakespeare? Yeah. So when I was a kid, the Nashville Public Library filmed a puppet show of Hamlet, and I watched it on public access TV, and. Nothing Shakespeare has topped that. That 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 was cool. And you can go on YouTube and you can watch it to search Nashville Public Library Hamlet Puppets. It's great. Um, and then my mom took me or got me some version of Midsummer Night's Dream. And I was like, this is lame. Nobody's killing each other. And then I s- did not read anything Shakespeare until I had to read Hamlet in high school. I don't know. I've seen Throne of Blood. I've I've. Have you seen Ran? I forgot to mention Ran. I haven't seen Ran. Sorry, I've seen Ran. (laughs) Mainly, mainly what I do now is when anything Shakespeare comes up, I will, in like a comic or a movie or something, I will then go back and reference, like I have the complete works of Shakespeare, I'll go back and reference those. Um, So I've read a ton of like monologues from Shakespeare, but the only plays I've read all the way through are Hamlet and uh, Julius Caesar. I just want to say, uh, there are other Shakespeare adaptations I missed, but I just want to point, I'm not going to list them all, but I want to point this out, is that the Wikipedia page for list of Shakespeare adaptations includes Lion King 2019, but does not include the 1994 version, which I think is very funny. That's, yeah, because we didn't mention, like, Lion King or Black Panther or anything or like Simba's that. Bride, like, Lion King 2, Simba's Pride, which is Romeo and Juliet. Uh, I had another one open here. West Side Story is, of course, Romeo and Juliet. Oh, yeah, I mean, of course. everything's Romeo and Juliet. It's almost impossible not to experience yeah. that growing up. Yeah. I mean, I think it would be impossible to list every But it's know, more fun to list Shakespeare than to talk about this movie. <laughs> no, I completely well, agree. Even, even in this movie, which I'll just go out there and say it, this is, this is m- mid-tier Shakespeare at best. Listen, Shakespeare wrote a lot. He had to have his his duds. I, yeah, I think uh, this one was a dud, personally. I don't like this. I, I I don't like Henry V as a play. I think if I was to give this movie a grade, it'd be a diplomatic three out of five, just because I think technically it's very well done. I just all my faults of it are just this is lesser Shakespeare to me. Like I just don't like Henry V. Yeah, I agree. Well, but it's I, still cool to hear quotes that I didn't know come from this. Yeah, and I think that it's, I think that we're kind of, you know, as much as we didn't really like the movie, I think that, I think that the award that um, Laurence Olivier won, which ironically doesn't cover writing, I think that it really does, it is like a deserved award, I think, because the process of adapting Shakespeare, even if the dialogue is largely unchanged, you have to kind of figure out what to cut, what to keep. Um, and so, like, I always thought, like, oh, it's kind of silly that, like, Kenneth Branagh was nominated for, like, Hamlet or whatever for, you know, Best Adapted Screenplay. But, like, restoring that kind of – restoring the plot while cutting kind of the unnecessary stuff is very tricky. And I think that, you know, Lawrence Olivier was kind of the first person to really 
want to adapt Shakespeare in that way. And I think, you know, as much as we didn't really like the movie, I think that he did succeed in kind of giving us the basic gist of Henry V. Uh, I would agree. But the thing is, uh, and I have this perspective that you two don't because you haven't seen it, is that to me, the Branagh version just completely annihilates the point of this one to exist. Uh, other than as an interesting historical, like, fact. Because I think the Branagh version both, I think Branagh's much, well, I guess it's just the style of acting. But I think Branagh as an actor, I just like him more as Olivier. Uh, I think Branagh does some really smart intercutting. He brings in some stuff from Henry IV, if I remember right, or Henry III. Uh, well, so does, so does Olivier. So does Olivier. Not to the same extent that Branagh does. Branagh does it a lot more. And Branagh also doesn't cut the stuff. I mean, he cuts it because it's still like <laughs> the Branagh version is shorter than this. That's it, too. The Branagh version is a shorter film than this by about half an hour. Uh, I also just think, uh, I don't know. To me, it's just the Branagh. The whole, this is interesting in how it's stylized, but Branagh tried to bring some gritty realism to Shakespeare, which to me, uh, I don't even like his Henry V that much. I just think it's a better way to experience this story. Well, this was propaganda. It was meant as a rallying call and a morale boost for uh, for English people and as like a way of mythologizing not only the time of Henry V but also the time of Shakespeare because the thing that I didn't know going into this was this starts out as a play in the round just it's you know you see the actors getting ready you see the audience you hear them it's like having a laugh track and then at one point it fades from the backdrop at the round to the backdrop of the movie Probably the best and, moment of the whole movie, <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah, it gets it gets to a really good shot that's clearly composed off of medieval imagery. But um, I I just I think it's interesting if you look at purely as a piece of propaganda. But because it's a piece of propaganda and because it's trying to mythologize this, it cut like there is just no tension here. I think. Yeah. We would say in modern terms that Winston Churchill would be like a producer of sorts. He was very, he had a lot of input on what went into the film. Um, so like, for example, there's some parts of the play um, that kind of criticize the leadership and criticize the king. And that was completely cut because obviously, you know, it was about, uh, you know, national pride and things like that. But as we've kind of talked about a little bit or we've touched on, it's very weird how, you know, this movie was meant to kind of rally the troops who were going to, who were in France and who were going to Normandy and stuff like that. Um, but the French in the movie are this like Nazi allegory. It's just, it's very bizarre how it's kind of structured. And it's also just weak because like, the point at the point of every time when they're like, why are we fighting this war? It's like, well, because our king wants to, and our duty is to king and country. But that just makes me personally think of how like petty royalty was and how like much of a broken system it was and how it sucked that so many people had to lose their lives because a couple families, a couple inbred families were fighting like at least with World War II, you're liberating Europe from fascists. Like, and I yeah. think it's important to kind of again, like everything surrounding this movie is more interesting than the movie. But 
I mean, this movie was very popular when it came out. It was in theaters for 11 months. Um, it was like, this was kind of like Laurence Olivier's like passion project for a while. And then obviously he moved on to other Shakespeare movies. Um, I would say Hamlet was probably his most successful. Um, he was actually paid by the studio to not be in any movies because he wanted to build anticipation for his next project. And I, I mean, it's impossible to say if the troops watched this and were like, yeah, we're going to beat the Nazis. You know, it's that's not we can't fathom what, what happened there. But the movie was it, a huge success. I mean, it's considered to be, you know, like one of the most successful British films of all time. So well, I think it's very end, much the scope here is very impressive. I think the technical uh, technical elements of this is like phenomenal. Uh, and of course, I imagine that in the 40s, you know, because, you know, theater, of course, was a much bigger deal back then because, like, there was one in every town. I have to imagine the average person were more aware of just seeing Shakespeare plays, you know? Uh, so this is, I don't want to speak for the 40s because I really don't know what the state of, like, Shakespeare and popularity was there in the U.S., but I have to imagine that uh, this would be the equivalent of, like, an adaptation of like a pretty popular novel. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this was considered probably the first commercial success for Shakespeare. Um, and I think, you know, again, we didn't really like the movie, but I think with good reason. I mean, I think that it was a very, I think it's impressive that, you know, for audiences, not just at the time, but like nowadays, you know, people watch this movie and they enjoy it. Having that straight dialogue and having that kind of introductory moment where it's like, okay, you're going to listen to Shakespeare dialogue now, so you got to get used to it. It's kind of, it's definitely interesting. It's interesting that he knew to kind of integrate those kind of, you know, not warnings per se, but he knew that he needed to kind of slowly introduce it and include that framing device. And it's, historically i think it's interesting to look at even if the movie is not it's interesting to see what a shakespeare adaptation kind of looked like and obviously influenced branagh i mean obviously it's you know this was kind of the the standard for a very long time yeah and i will say the the battle scene at the core of this which i assume not having seen henry v is not acted out on stage to any great extent um, it is very impressive for the time. It's one of those things where you quickly realize that you'll never actually see any impact from weapons, but just the amount of people they have and the amount of choreography that's going into it and the detail, that stuff is really exciting to watch. I just wanted there to be more uh, cross-dressing. Keep it accurate <laughs> time. True. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, would have made any of the scenes with... Uh, Catherine Barable. Yeah, so about that, uh, I did have a little fun fact. So originally, Vivian Lee, who was married to Laurence Olivier at the time, wanted to be in the movie, uh, but Selznick did not want to release her from her contract because he thought it was too small of a part. So they got a different actress. Don't ask me your name, because I'm not going to look. Um <laughs> She she had the exact same measurements as Vivian Lee, so she was able to take over the role. Um, but again, we see that pattern 
years later with Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, I was and, about to say, yeah. And Emma Thompson, yeah. Um, of course, then he cheated on Emma Thompson with Helena Bottom Carter. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but... well, it's, I feel like, yeah. Um, so they, I can't, I don't know if they married before. They married in 1989, so I don't know if they married before or after the production of Henry V. Uh, but that's why Much Ado About Nothing is a very interesting movie to watch because they're the, they are the romantic leads in it. And if you've ever read Much Ado About Nothing, you know Benedict and Beatrice kind of hate each other, and that's why they love each other. <laughs> but like, uh, by all accounts, around that time was when they were having their falling out during the shooting of that film. Uh, well, so. it was during it was during Frankenstein specifically. Is when he yeah. Well, out. I really if isn't Frankenstein? I think Frankenstein is right before. Uh, believe it's right before uh no it's right after much ado okay yeah it's right mm-hmm. after much but ado. it's i mean i think that's i know that again this isn't really specifically about the movie but i think it's fascinating that you know history kind of has a way of repeating itself and you know we might i don't think we're ever going to revisit any of these shakespeare adaptations i could be wrong but i don't think we'll get to the brana adaptations we might get to Belfast. I don't know. If, well, I was gonna say, what if Macbeth? What if what if everything? What if everything wins? Thinking that we have to watch Macbeth. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is. I think it's fascinating how I. You know, I guess the moral of the story is that Shakespeare is very timeless, especially at the Oscars. Um, it's just these same stories get told over and over again, whether it's Lawrence Olivier in a blackface or <laughs> Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> playing Iago, like it's it's fascinating to see how much they kind of have become oscar bait movies yeah like i thought you were gonna say from Laurence olivier in blackface to denzel being nominated this year for a shakespeare role well, yeah so, sure yeah like and denzel phenomenal and tragic Macbeth. i wouldn't mind him winning i don't think he's going to win because it's it's a Macbeth movie <laughs> but it's a really great performance um, but yeah, uh, I would agree that Shakespeare is timeless. I think though we do exist, unfortunately, well, this goes for everything is that I don't necessarily see Shakespeare adaptations getting the budget or even like the places to be anymore. Nowadays, they just shoot something at the national theater and call it a day, you know, like Branagh did a Romeo and Juliet that was recorded, but it's just with Lily James and it was on stage. So, well, now we'll get, a. Uh... Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. I'm excited for like... Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. <laughs> um, I'm psyched. As the uncultured non-theater swan, I'm going to roll in here with some hot takes. Um, some some Shakespeare is timeless. Henry V isn't. Um, like Some very clearly, like Taming of the Shrew definitely isn't. Uh, speak of bad Shakespeare adaptations, but Clintock is maybe the worst Shakespeare movie ever made. I, I do think, though, I hate to be like defending the Branagh version so much, but I think the Branagh version of Henry V is so much more watchable than this. And I would recommend you to try it out like in five years or so. Like, well, I think that's not immediately, of, but like at some point in your life. Well, that's kind of the interesting part is like that Branagh, like the Lord's Olivier created that craft and then Branagh, you know, perfected it. Yeah, that's how I feel about it, definitely. Well, and that's where all what I was going to say is that. Why, like, I'm not saying that you shouldn't adapt Shakespeare anymore, but what can you do with Shakespeare? And I think that was a big question around uh, Tragedy of Macbeth, which I enjoyed, but it's like, 
at the end of the day, it is just Macbeth. So I, I think that we've gotten to the point where there is no there is no real weight behind Shakespeare adaptations, and we need the next director who's going to come in and figure out how to shake it up. Who's going to be the next Kenneth Branagh? I wonder. Well, probably someone from the stage, like Branagh and Olivier were, I believe. Right? Wasn't Olivier from the stage? I know Branagh yeah. started on the stage. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, did Olivier, but yeah. I, I don't well, know. Like I, I feel like even now that would just be too close to Branagh. And well, that's the people said that about Branagh with Olivier. That well, that's is, the thing. Is it we're in? I mean, we're in the year 2022. Is it going to be a woman? Is it going to be a person of color? Is yeah. it going to be somebody who's queer? You know, that's the beauty of it. Is I think Shakespeare has that timelessness, but it also has that adaptability. Yeah, yeah. I 100% agree. Um, yeah, I think I think we desperately need. To me, I go back to the like. It's not even that. It's who will fund it. Because the thing to me that's crazy about Henry V, and lesser about this because this is, and, oh, excuse me, the brand on Henry V is that it came out in 1989 and was fairly successful. I, I feel like this being successful in the 40s isn't as surprising to me than a Shakespeare movie being successful in the late 80s and the 90s with Much Ado making money too. Uh, Much Ado, I believe, has the record for the highest grossing Shakespeare adaptation that keeps the text in. Um just like I don't nowadays I feel like you know this kind of this kind of is a whole different discussion but I feel like nowadays whoever the next Branagh is is going to be stuck on streaming and stuff on streaming never gets like the cultural well that's what I mean when I yeah. say you know is it going to be it's not going to be a white man that's the whole point no yeah agree yeah it'll be something that goes viral on Twitter then people will be like you have to check out this version of Shakespeare that's man, on Netflix I'm, right now I've got to keep coming out with the hot takes I don't I don't care about Shakespeare being accurate to the language. I get that's the big appeal with Shakespeare. But I love Sophocles. I love Euripides. You know why I love them? Because they've been translated a billion times from the Greek. And you can translate them any way you want. And I think, like, what do I want to see? Do I want to see just another person do, like, a retelling of Hamlet? Or do I want to see someone take the pieces of Hamlet, the pieces of Macbeth, and find a new way to mix them up, and not not make a not make a Hamlet movie, not make a Macbeth movie, but just make a movie that's taking like the the uh, archetypes from those? Well, I agree, but I also think that it's two different discussions. I think talking about who's the next Branagh or Olivier is a different discussion than who's going to make the next Throne of Blood, or who's going to make the next Ran, or who's going to make uh, the next Ten Things I Hate About You, uh, like. It's a well, very different, like, they're different discussions to have. There's because the I think... plain old Shakespeare adaptation, which we really, like, sorry, which is really the Tragic Macbeth is the first one of those we've had since, I believe, the Joss Whedon Much Ado about nothing that got, like, an actual distribution, which I don't like the Whedon. Like, again, that's something where it's like, why would I watch the, well, before the whole Whedon thing, why would I watch that when the, the Branham version exists? Uh, but that's my point, is, like, they are different things we're talking about, I feel like. But I, I think that... Even if you keep the text, because I, again, I don't care too, too much about Shakespeare, but I love Hamlet. Like, I love the text of it. I think there's so many things you could do with it. I think it's like, you know, why can't Hamlet be a woman? Why can't Horatio be in love with Hamlet? Like, that kind of thing. Like, you can keep that text and have that interpretation attached to it. And I think that that's... You know, I don't mean to be like, you know, a Shakespeare simp or whatever, but like, 
I think that there's so much that you can do with it, even if you're only using the original text. And I think that that's the difference with, you know, Shakespeare versus whoever else. Like, the adaptation is is interesting because you can use that text and you can use those words and you can change them to match whatever narrative you're trying to create. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I'm really excited for whenever we do get another Shakespeare adaptation that actually does experiment with the text and feels as radical as, because I, I, I read up on it when I watched it a few months back, but the Branagh Henry V was considered to be a radical reworking of Shakespeare at the time. And I look forward to whenever that happens again, because I don't think Tragic Macbeth is that. And I really, no. I don't think it's, much ado is that, I mean, the, we didn't much ado is that either, because it really just is the Baz Luhrmann one, but without energy, like the Baz Luhrmann style. And I Macbeth, guess. Macbeth was just because Francis McDormand wanted um, Cohen to, I forget which Cohen it was. Was it Joel Cohen? It's Joel who directs it. Yeah. Whoever she's yeah, he, married to. Yeah, yeah. She wanted him to direct a play version. And he's like, I don't really think I want to do it for the stage, but I do it for movies. Um, and so it makes sense that it's kind of a more straight down the middle, uh, basing kind of off of what uh, Olivier did with the German expressionism and his version of Hamlet and stuff. Um, but I'm wondering, since you guys know Shakespeare a little bit more, what plays could you do it with? Like you said Hamlet, Sarah, but are there like other maybe not as well-known Shakespeare well, plays that you could adapt. Before we do that, I want to correct something I said, which is I said Much Ado, the Branagh was the most successful Shakespeare play that used the original text. That is removing Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> there are several Romeo and Juliet movies. Yeah, that well, Baz Luhrmann. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say in modern in modern times, I think you would look at something like Twelfth Night, or you know something maybe potentially like Chaming of the Shrew. Well, Twelfth Night especially, can I think you can interpret it as a trans narrative. And I think that that's what's interesting about it is it plays with gender. And, and I mean, that's all Shakespeare kind of, you know, as we talked about, you know, in jest, but like, you know, I want, I want men to kiss in this version. But like, that's kind of, I think that that's kind of an interesting aspect is that we kind of circled back around and we can look at it in terms of, you know, gender roles and things like that. And especially Twelfth Night, because it is about you know, cross-dressing and things like that. I think that you could make it into a trans narrative for sure. Yeah, I, I would say um, without any specific ideas on how you, would, you know, change Shakespeare or these specific plays, I do think the answer is to look at the comedies because there are plenty of comedies that have never really been adapted into a def- like a definitive movie version. Because uh, people really just stick with like Much Ado or a... Uh, uh, Mid- well, Midsummer's. I can't even think of a good movie version of that, but like it's really those two, Merchant of Venice and uh, Taming of the Shrew, you know? Wait, is Merchant of Venice one of his comedies? It's it is, a comedy. yes. Yeah. Okay, I only know it because it's super anti-Semitic, but... <laughs> well, that's why you gotta fix it. That's why you gotta fix it. Yeah. It? <laughs> but again, I don't mean to like keep saying the same thing over and over again, but I think that finding the balance between using those texts and using you know editing them down i think is is kind of a masterful thing to do and i think again as we've said we've only seen it happen basically twice and i guess we could maybe argue baz Luhrmann. 
<laughs> Which I don't like I that like movie, but I do. I, <laughs> I do think that that movie is good. So I agree. I enjoy it a lot. Every Baz Luhrmann movie gives me a headache. Like, <laughs> I think Moulin Rouge is great. I love it. Not I, I qualify on this podcast. I won too much. I will say, every time Baz Luhrmann has a movie out, I'm like, man, I hope this is the one I like. I'm so Doesn't excited happen. for Elvis. I got the Elvis trailer when I saw Batman and Dolby, and I was like, yeah, I can't wait to see some Dolby. I did. I like well, that's the thing, is that my boyfriend, again, he loves like music, so I was like, watch this trailer and tell me what you think of it. And he was like, didn't talk didn't talk about him taking from black people enough. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's funny that the reaction is there, because to me, I felt like the trailer acknowledged it way more than I expected a Baz Elvis movie would. <laughs> My favorite thing about the trailer when that trailer dropped, just a side note, is they put it up on Twitter as like an 11 minute video, and I was like, that's a long trailer. And then I was like, oh no, about eight minutes of it's just Baz Luhrmann talking about the trailer before this is such a random do you remember the get down how it was like one part and it was like so expensive for netflix and then it got canceled <laughs> but yeah. uh, we still got put out part two <laughs> i'm just uh, baz. i but that's the thing okay to get back to it we don't need a baz Luhrmann. we need we need a woman we need a person of color we need somebody who's queer and i think that you can still use that original text and you can still like things like again i keep going back to hamlet because it's my favorite one but things like you know how ophelia is like we've had these narratives about ophelia and like how she's she's crazy and i think that you can really examine the original text and see that it's you know i don't mean to be like you know this is a stupid thing to say but i think that shakespeare was definitely more woke quote unquote when it came to like how he wrote his his plays and things like that and i think you know these allusions to homosexuality and these allusions to you know othello was like you know kind of a big deal at the time like i think that there's still some definite themes that could play out even in the 21st century i don't really have much more to say on it i agree I just, I, I honestly, like, I like Shakespeare. Like, I, I will admit it. <laughs> I mean, I like Billy Shakes, too. He's great. Yeah, I like Shakespeare. I, I, I just have a joke I want to make. I'm sorry. Uh, and that's because when I was looking at his plays, I found this play that I've never seen. I've never heard of before, which is rare for Shakespeare. Uh, and I got a, I, if, if, if I got Bob Chapik on speed dial, I would say a lot of things to him. But after I said those negative things i'd be like but you know you you're all about your ip and let me tell you it's ridiculous that we don't have a lion king like thing on disney plus that's just based off timon of athens <laughs> because there's a shakespeare play named timon of athens <laughs> timon is right there <laughs> i will say i almost saw henry the third i think it was with David Tennant when I was in London in 2013, Ooh. but I ended up seeing American Psycho, the musical with Matt Smith instead. So you saw one of the doctors either yes. way. I, the last, no, go Matt ahead, sorry. Matt Smith is not the doctor I would choose to play Patrick Bateman. He was really good. The last thing that I will say, I wanted to mention this because, actually I had two things from IMDb. 
because I was worried that I wouldn't have anything to say about the movie, which we haven't talked about the movie at all. I know, um, I mean, there's nothing to talk about there. Talking about Shakespeare is more interesting. <laughs> one thing that I wanted to say is that one of the extras in the movie was played by Anthony Newley. He was the youngest actor on the set. He was 12 years old. Anthony Newley was in a movie called Sweet November, which is a very good movie, but he was most known for writing the songs in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, cool. So cool. that's one little piece. And then wait, another before act- you give wait, wait, before you give the everyone, can I just say something that really annoyed me earlier this week? Oh, well, yesterday is I decided out of curiosity because Letterbox has this really bad habit of when a new movie comes out, everyone logs it over, and then it becomes more popular than classics. So I looked up John Turturro's uh, filmography, and. Well, first off, the Batman's already number two in it behind Big Lebowski, meaning more people have logged the Batman on Letterboxd than do the right thing, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, Barton Fink, Cars 2, and <laughs> Transformers. But the really big thing to me is I think it's funny to put credit John Turturro for Raging Bull when he's in the background of a shot and it's his fourth most watched movie on Letterboxd. Because <laughs> Raging he's Bull is... Well, yeah, but like... To put it in perspective, Raging Bull came out nine years before Do the Right Thing. And Do the Right Thing is what's always referred to as a young John Turturro movie. Listen, <laughs> when I logged Buffy the Vampire Slayer last year, it was still Ben Affleck's movie. <laughs> <laughs> the other trivia that I will mention is that <laughs> this is so bizarre. There's a specific IMDb trivia that mentions that the last cast member died in 2015. Therefore, every person in this movie is dead. <laughs> you know, when in high school, me and my friend Alex watched uh, Rear Window one day, and we played a game where we went through and tried to find a single person involved in that movie who was still alive. I don't think we did. <laughs> Speaking um, of rear window, this year now, was this year was Jimmy Stewart's year. <laughs> um, before we do move on to our game, I have one last thing I wanted to say because I, I mentioned it via text and I didn't say it, and it'd be a good way to end. Is this movie has its credits at the end? I thought that was cool. I'm not sure what you say, but it's an interesting observation to have that the credits are at the end of this yes. first movie we covered for, with that, and I think it'll be probably the last for a while. You know, so. No opening credits for this. At least the version that's on HBO Max. You know? the, well, the version on HBO Max was from the 70s. Did you notice that? Yeah, I did. I, want, I, I, I got logged in on my Criterion channel that I've been borrowing. So I wanted to switch to that and see if it was any different, but I couldn't. So, But yeah, I did. Well, honestly, it's probably the same version because I did notice Criterion Collection was at the yeah, beginning it was of the like, Yeah, it had the logo. So yeah, That might have just been... I don't know when it was remastered. But yeah. All right, let's wrap this up into our game. Uh, Sarah, what was Henry V nominated for? Yes, so it was nominated for uh, Best Picture, which I actually never said what it lost to. I'm sorry. It was the best years of our lives it lost to. Um, it's going to be the best year of my life. Yeah, okay. Uh, best <laughs> Actor for Laurence Olivier, Best Art Direction, Interior Decoration, Color. Uh, best and best scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture. And again, it won an honorary award 
for basically best Shakespeare adaptation. Or more like first successful Shakespeare adaptation. Like majorly yeah. successful. Um, I'm giving this a score. We didn't really talk about it much. I think it's a really rousing score. It sounds great. Uh, really stands out from the movie. Uh, that's my choice. I don't know what my choice would be. <laughs> because I think that it makes it more difficult because obviously this is the same year as It's a Wonderful Life. Well, night. don't think about that. Uh, don't, don't have that be... I have to think about that. Wow. Um, I guess I would give it to Art Direction. I just realized that I, I was saying the round theater, not the globe theater earlier the globe when I was theater, talking about yeah. it. <laughs> I just thought you meant like a theater in the round, which technically it kind of looks yeah, like. So yeah. I wasn't going to bite you on it. I will say, um, I think it's very impressive set direction, but the Globe Theater does look very tiny. And I'm not sure how big it actually was, but um, it was bigger in that one episode, Doctor Who, where uh, Shakespeare <laughs> fought the space witches. So I'm going to have to give it to score uh, just because lack of accuracy. All right. And then we have to add an... Uh, Oh, <laughs> I, I feel easy. like I have two yeah, options. I feel like this one is pretty easy. I'm not gonna lie. Okay, the, can y'all go first? Because I don't know. All right, I will say cinematography. I was also gonna go cinematography, so I think it looks really good. Yeah, why not? I <laughs> I can say the other option. I was thinking if you What's want your other option, what is yours? Doesn't exist yet, but costume design. Costumes are very good in this, too. Fun fact about the costumes that I read is that um, metal was spare, was sparse because obviously when it, we, they were in the middle of a war, so all of the chain mail was actually knit. Oh, cool. Neat. So, um, yeah. yeah, we'll just make it unanimous. The cinematography, especially in the battle scene, was good. So next time, which will be in three weeks rather than two, dun dun dun, because we're going to Los Angeles to see. And that'll be post. That'll be post the Oscars. It will be post Oscars, and it will also be post me giving Bob Chapik some money, (laughs) turning red. Just kidding. I've already paid for it, so it's not really posted. I'm already post giving him money. But anyway, we'll be covering another movie from this Academy Awards, the 19th. And it also had four nominations. But this time, it has no special award. And it has no wins of these competitive Oscars. So it is the most snubby club film of the 19th Academy Awards. And that is, drumroll please. The Killers, 1946. <laughs> My favorite Mormon band? <laughs> <laughs> the Killers will be what we're covering in two, three weeks. Excuse me. So We'll also, of course, talk about what won at the Oscars. Or rather, what lost, more likely. <laughs> All right. I'm Danny Vincent. You can follow me on Letterboxd at Blankman's, where you can find my reviews of everything including the Batman turning red and all those fun blockbusters that are at home or in theaters. You can also hear me talk on why is with Ty and Dan, a Marvel podcast where we are currently prepping for Dr. Strange. In fact, I believe Sarah will be on. Let's talk about Sam Raimi by the time our next episode comes out of this. So sure yeah. to check that out. We, we like Sam. 
Sam. Big yeah. fan. Big yeah, fan. Big, yeah. Get ready for blank check. Uh, hope they pay did, me for that. Did he direct that? <laughs> no, no. Uh, the podcast Blank Check is doing a Sam Raimi series of all of his films uh, starting in a couple weeks. Uh, I'm still at the 2015 episode, so it'll be a while till I get to those. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, yeah. Check out that if you want. I'm Caleb Bunn. You can find me at Caleb from the Real World on Instagram and YouTube. And if you like hearing me and Danny talk about things, and you should check out the latest episode of All New 52, which features Danny and Tyler from Why Is We Talk About King Thor, the story that wraps up Jason Aaron's legendary run on Thor. Um, it's all part of uh, me and Joe building up to the 50th episode of All New 52, which is going to be a, a is it's going to be a fun one. So, um, and I think. Thanks to Joe, who edits our podcast. So thanks, Joe. Oh, thanks, Joe. We love you. I forgot to make him last week on Why Is, so I want to make sure he knows I love him. Okay. <laughs> and I'm Sarah. You can find me on Letterboxd, just my name, Sarah Kanoff. Um, if you're interested in seeing which films will be excluded from the 94th Oscars telecast, um, I made a list on my Letterboxd. Um, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at SGK29, E-S-S-G-E-K-A-Y-29. Um, you can find my blog of sorts um, uh, at sarahswatchrecap.wordpress.com. Um, right now I'm watching The X-Files. Great show. I'm still um, waiting on the Arthur review. We'll see what happens <laughs> with that. <laughs> um, you can find us, uh, The Snub Club, on Facebook, just The Snub Club. Um, Instagram Sub Club Podcast and Twitter Sub Club Pod. Um, and yeah, and of course on Snub Club Pod, you can catch us live tweeting the Academy's tweets about the Oscars because we <laughs> won't be watching. <laughs> we'll see. I probably won't watch regardless, but you know, if they change their, you know, if they change their minds, then maybe one of us will be watching. We'll see. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah, if they change their minds, I'll probably still watch. So that's how you vote with your dollar. By your dollar, you mean your Newsom box. You hear that, Academy Awards and Bob Chapek? We'll still watch you. If so change you, it. If you meet our demands. <laughs> Gotta say, yeah. I'm really, I've been really tempted to cancel my Disney Plus. Then I remember we've paid for it through November anyway. <laughs> so we can't. Yeah, we did. It's on my credit card, too. Yeah. I mooch, baby. <laughs> They ain't getting a penny of my money <laughs> until I go see the next Marvel movie in theaters. <laughs> uh, All right. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>